Two, count them, two Avalanche High Performance Cores, four Blizzard High Efficiency Cores, up to five Graphics Cores, 16 Neural Engine Cores, and maybe, just maybe, our very first glimpse at what might be coming for the M2 and the next generation of Apple Silicon Macs. I'm Renee Ritchie. Thanks to Ting for sponsoring. Hit that subscribe button so we can hit 300K because this is the A15 Bionic Deep Dive. A15 is Apple's fifth generation Bionic System on a Chip, or SOC. And an SOC just means all of the components, the CPU, the GPU, the memory, they aren't laid out like a board, like a charcuterie plate. They're all on the same die or package, like a sandwich. And that sacrifices some modularity, but for some very real advantages in economy and efficiency, which is gonna be a bit of a theme here. Now, the base bionic architecture just has been remarkably consistent over the last few years. High efficiency or E-cores, high performance or P-cores, graphics cores, neural engine cores, and a bunch of other much more specific silicon features to support the much more specific experiences that Apple wants to deliver with each and every new iPhone. But it didn't start out that way, not at all. It started out with Steve Jobs way back in the day, understanding that Apple needed to own the technologies that would become critical differentiators for their products. And sure, he wanted the best sushi chef from Japan for Cafe Max, but he needed the best silicon engineers in the world for Apple Silicon. Now, in 2007, the original iPhone launched with an off-the-shelf Samsung Arm 11 processor repurposed from set-top boxes. But when the original iPad was set to debut in 2010, Apple's first in-house processor debuted with it. We have a chip called A4, which is our most advanced chip we've ever done. And it went into the iPhone 4 just a few months later. And that decision, the decision to use the A4 in both the iPad and the iPhone was just such a huge quad major key to Apple's eventual silicon dominance, including everything from the S1 to the M1. And if you want a video on that, let me know in the comments right below the like button. Now, A4 was also ARM, a reduced instruction set or RISC architecture, as opposed to the complex instruction set or CISC of x86 that Intel and AMD were using to just own the PC world at the time. But Intel, who Apple had just finished transitioning to on the Mac, couldn't make anything even nearly efficient enough for the iPhone or the iPad. So Apple licensed ARM's Cortex A8 design and came up with a single core CPU based on an enhanced version called Hummingbird. One gigahertz for the iPad, 800 megahertz for the iPhone 4, fabricated or fabbed on Samsung's 45 nanometer process. But Apple, and more specifically, Johnny Saruji's silicon team, had their sights set much further out, so much further out. Meanwhile, in 2011, the A5 launched with dual ARM Cortex A9 cores, fabbed on Samsung's 45 nanometer process. Again, one gigahertz in the iPad 2, 800 megahertz in the iPhone 4S. Now, ARM has two different kinds of licenses, a design license where you get access to ARM's own cores like the Cortex, but also an instruction set architecture or ISA license where you get access to the code ARM uses, but you're otherwise free to make up your own custom core designs. So in 2012, with the A6, Apple switched from licensing ARM's Cortex designs to licensing the ARM V7 ISA and launched their first custom cores, dual 1.3 gigahertz Swift cores for the iPhone 5, fabbed on Samsung's 32 nanometer process. Apple started pushing ARM for a 64-bit instruction set, hard. Apple's ISA license was, or became, incredibly open-ended as well, where they could pretty much do whatever they wanted to do, something we and the industry would see pay off really damn soon. For their designs, Apple went wide and slow. Also, highly out of order and superscalar. Instead of a two-lane highway with a ton of supercars stuck in traffic, a four or eight lane boulevard of SUVs with 
so much more throughput, more cores, more bandwidth, lower clock speeds, which let them handle more instructions at lower power and with much less heat. Something that's also gonna come up again for the A15. And that's when we got the shot heard around the silicon world. A7 is 64 bit. And it's 1.3 gigahertz cyclone cores on the ARM V8 instruction set on ARM64, all fabbed on Samsung's 28 nanometer process. Not just a more modern architecture, but a cleaner, more efficient, more targeted one that would let Apple really start scaling for the future. And the key thing here is not because Apple was using ARM, but because Apple was starting to drive ARM. In 2015, the A8 didn't go with an entirely new CPU architecture, but with an enhanced version of Cyclone the 1.4 gigahertz dual Typhoon cores. And they were notable because they switched from Samsung's process to Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing or TSMC's. It was a 20 nanometer process for the big and bigger iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus. In 2016, Samsung came back into the mix briefly for the A9 and its dual 1.9 gigahertz twister cores. Supply constraints led Apple to dual source for the iPhone 6S and 6S Plus, with some of the chipsets fabbed on Samsung's 14 nanometer process and some on TSMC's 16 nanometer process. And despite it sounding like Samsung's process was smaller and therefore better, TSMC's process ended up making cores that just beat Samsung out on power efficiency, which highlights a few critically important aspects of silicon fabs. Process size isn't a standardized physical convention. It is a non-standardized marketing convention and different fabs, even on the same or better sounding processes might not end up producing the same performance or efficiency. But beyond that, Apple benefited from generation after generation of process shrinks from 45 nanometer on the A4 to 16 nanometer on the A9. And when the process shrinks, it means you can either fit the same amount of transistors in a smaller space, which makes for less heat and even better efficiency, or you can fit even more transistors in the same amount of space and heat, which just gives you a bigger transistor budget to spend on faster cores, or as we'll soon see, a plethora of other features. 2016 was a milestone. A10 fusion. Akin to what ARM markets as big dot little, basically fusing dual high efficiency one gigahertz Zephyr cores with dual high performance 2.3 gigahertz hurricane cores still fabbed on TSMC's 16 nanometer process. Now the idea of the efficiency cores was as the performance cores got bigger and faster, they'd leave this giant battery draining gap beneath them for tasks that didn't require cores that were anywhere nearly that big or fast. And so Apple introduced the efficiency cores to fill that gap, as well as the new Apple performance controller, Apple's secret sauce, which would figure out which tasks would go to which pair of cores. But with A10, only the performance cores or efficiency cores could be used at any given time because fusion. So in 2017, we got the A11 Bionic. It's defused, which meant the new quad 1.6 gigahertz Mistral high efficiency cores and the dual 2.4 gigahertz Monsoon high performance cores could be used separately or together for any task at any given time. In 2018, Apple built on Bionic with the A12 and its quad 1.6 gigahertz Tempest high efficiency cores and dual 2.5 gigahertz Vortex high-performance cores fabbed on TSMC's seven nanometer process. In 2019, with the A13 and its quad 1.7 gigahertz Thunder high-efficiency cores and dual 2.7 gigahertz Lightning high-performance cores fabbed on TSMC's second generation seven nanometer process, which for the first time included dedicated Apple machine learning accelerators or AMX blocks right on the CPU. Then in 2020, 
Just last year, we got to A14 Bionic with quad 1.8 gigahertz Ice Storm high efficiency cores and dual 3.1 gigahertz Firestorm high performance cores, fabbed on TSMC's five nanometer process for the iPad Air 4 and iPhone 12 and M1 in the first generation of Apple Silicon Max and the current iPad Pro. Fast forward to today, and we now have A15 Bionic with quad Blizzard high efficiency cores probably still just under two gigahertz and dual 3.2 gigahertz avalanche high performance cores, at least in the iPhone 13. They're down clocked to 2.9 gigahertz on the iPad mini, maybe for hardware specific reasons, or maybe just been that way for yield and supply reasons. If you do the synthetic geeky benchmark math, which everybody does, those avalanche P cores come out to roughly 10% faster, at least for single core performance and just under 20% for multi-core than last year's Firestorm P cores. It's not the leaps and bounds we've seen in years when Apple moved to fully custom cores or added cores or benefited from process shrinks, but that Apple moved from a song of ice and Firestorm to Avalanche and Blizzard, or just double the cold code names, might be less of a coincidence and more of a hint at how the bandwidth increases have once again enabled a leap forward, not in terms of pure performance, but in terms of performance per watt efficiency. Now, Apple's been doing GPU hardware acceleration since long before it was fashionable, leaning heavily on it for things like interface animations, and back in the day, making sure the original iPhone ran at a solid, consistent 60 frames per second, what Steve Jobs absolutely insisted on. But Apple didn't get into custom GPUs for a while, not with the 2010 A4, which used an Imagination PowerVR SGX 535. And they stayed with PowerVR even all the way through the 2016 A10 Fusion, which was based on a Hexacore PowerVR 7XT GT7600, based on because Apple started customizing the GPU with their own in-house shader cores and half-precision floating point just to increase performance and power efficiency, especially for new features like the depth effect computational photography behind the iPhone 7's portrait mode. Now, in 2017, the A11 took it not just a step further, but a shader-fueled leap. Our first ever Apple-designed de graphics processing unit, or GPU. The Apple G10. And A12 took that custom GPU to four cores with the G11P. The A13 and A14 kept that exact same four GPU core configuration. And so does this year's A15, at least kinda, because the G14 on the iPhone 13 Pro and iPad mini has a fifth core that gives the Pro a whopping 55% increase in metal performance over the A14. But like I said, GPU accelerates a lot of the iOS experience and Apple's making sure all those cores are being fed by double the already beefy, beefy system cache, which should mean 32 megabytes this year. And yeah, Hot damn, or rather, cold damn. And more on that in just another minute. Because with the A15 GPU, Apple also added support for lossy texture compression. The A12 previously added lossless support, but lossy means half the memory for the same resolution textures, or better still, double the resolution for the same memory. Also sparse depth and stencil textures, which save memory by not rendering textures below UI elements, for example, or shadows that fall outside the camera area and SIMD shuffle and fill. Now, we still need to talk about the A15's most impressive new capability, but there's one more set of cores we have to dive into first, and that's the neural engines. Because in the beginning, in the early days of hardware-accelerated machine learning, Apple relied entirely on the GPU. But in 2017, for the A11, they introduced the neural engine to just better handle the massive processing required for all the new algorithms and adversarial neural networks 
behind new features like Face ID on the iPhone 10, and in a faster and more efficient way than the general purpose GPUs ever could. That's why Apple called this architecture Bionic to begin with, because of Steve Austin. Not Stone Cold, not the Rattlestake, the $6 million man, Wikipedia. It was more of a proto-neural engine and wasn't accessible to developers yet, but that changed in 2018 with the A12. That went from two to eight cores and from 600 billion operations per second to 5 trillion. In 2019, with the A13 and the AMX blocks added to the CPU, Apple also added a machine learning controller, similar to the performance controller that could dispatch tasks to the AMX, the GPU, and the ANE in real time. It was the secret saucier. In 2020, with the A14, Apple doubled the neural engine count again, going to 16 cores and 11 trillion operations per second. And now with the A15, they're sticking with the 16 cores, but they've increased the amount of operations per second by over 40% to almost 15.8 trillion. And that absolutely makes the kind of sense that does, given the neural engine is what Apple's leaning on for so many of the new A15 features, like cinematic mode, which applies bokeh and rack focus to videos. But unlike portrait mode, which uses depth data to create a segmentation mask for a single still frame, then applies a custom lens model to it, cinematic mode has to process not only the current frame, but adjacent frames before and after it to make sure that bokeh stays consistent, stays buttery, and isn't jumping around, isn't all curdled. And that the rack focus is not only detecting things like shifts in gaze, but moving smoothly between them, even when a new gaze is coming into a shot from outside the crop, so it can be anticipated and locked onto immediately. Again, all in real time, in the viewfinder, so what you shoot is as close to possible what you get. And that's not just how real videography, real videographers expect the camera to work. It is some extreme silicon heavy lifting, especially when you consider how long it took phones like Google's Pixel to even begin doing basic portrait mode previews. But it's also more than that, because for a while now, Apple's been recognizing that the era of big general purpose compute engines is behind us. And sure, there'll be future process shrinks like TSMC's three nanometers, and who knows what's after that, just quantum realm nanometer, and architectural advancements, and instruction set bonuses, maybe not completely with ARM v9, because a lot of that is just backporting all the advances that Apple has made to all the other vendors that use ARM, but it should help with things like matrix multiplication. But there will also just be a point where the laws of physics, the thermal envelope of the iPhone, and the need to avoid browning out iPhone-sized batteries with massive spikes will all just come into play, which is why I think Apple is increasingly spending that transistor budget, especially this year, not on the traditional big cores, but on those specific features. For the vast majority of people, cameras are probably the second most important feature of any modern phone. Inside the A5 is an Apple-designed image signal processor. Apple added it for things like auto white balance, focus, face detection, all the basics, but it's gotten more and more sophisticated and powerful over the years. With the A12 and the iPhone XS, Apple introduced Smart HDR. With the A13 and the iPhone 11, Smart HDR 2 and Night Mode for extreme low light and astrophotography, and Deep Fusion for indoor lighting. With the A14, Smart HDR3, and Pro Raw, which melded the benefits of raw photography with the benefits of Apple's computational pipeline, which along with the unified memory architecture, allowed those tasks to not only be assigned to the best possible core at any given time, 
but even round trip between the different cores without wasting time and energy on copying, which significantly reduced overhead and increased capability. That big advantage for SOCs for silicon sandwiches. Now this year with A15, the ISP and Smart HDR fork can handle semantic rendering for multiple people in the same shot and process them separately and individually. Apple's also been using custom encode and decode blocks for H.264, then H.265, AKA HEVC, then VP9 for YouTube. This year they're all new and there's hardware acceleration for ProRes, something that Apple was using a reprogrammable ASIC afterburner card for on the Mac Pro just a couple of years ago. There's also a new custom NVMe storage controller. The original one debuted in 2015 with the A9. It was brought over from the Mac and used PCIe internally and something much closer akin to SSD than the previous embedded flash chips. The goal was to make sure every photo in every burst and every frame and every video was safely and properly recorded the whole time without dropping a single frame at any time, something that other phones, including and especially Google's Pixel, had struggled with for years. And the new version is just on Hulk Serum. It's meant to support cinematic video along with the depth maps and focus data that you can use to edit the aperture and rack focus in post and not only sustain 10-bit 4K HDR ProRes data, six gigabytes per minute, six gigabytes per minute for extended periods of time, but all the throughput needed to handle recording all that video in real time. And that's not... That's just not the type of innovation that typically gets called out on stage, much less in the comments, but it's the kind that makes a huge difference every day. Like portrait mode, face ID, spatial audio and Dolby Atmos, HDR and Dolby Vision. It's an example of Apple's silicon team working with the hardware and software teams years in advance, not to deliver spec bumps, though they'll certainly brag about those too and every chance they get, but specific features and experiences they think can only be delivered in that way or at least best delivered and differentiated in that way. And the biggest example, the biggest example of all of this with the A15 is battery life because the A15 manages to deliver that 10%, 20%, 55% across single multi and graphics performance while also helping to provide one and a half hours of additional battery life on the iPhone 13 mini and iPhone 13 Pro and two and a half hours on the iPhone 13 and iPhone 13 Pro Max. It's literally making this year's mini last longer than last year's non-mini, mini, whatever. And that's just for mixed everyday workloads. For highly optimized workloads, like hardware accelerated streaming video, you're getting three extra hours for this year's mini over last year's and a brain boggling 13 extra hours for the max. Now, sure, the batteries are slightly bigger this year. Software optimizations are better. The Qualcomm X60 modem is on Samsung's five nanometer process now, which isn't quite as good as TSMC's, but is still way better and more efficient than last year's X55 modem, especially for 5G. Also the iPhone 13 Pro and Pro Max have adaptive refresh displays now, which can ramp all the way down to 10 Hertz for high efficiency idling. And that's driven by the A15's new display engine and guided by its new always on touch controller, which adjusts that refresh rate in real time based on how fast your finger is moving on the display at any given time. And all those cores are being fed by double system cache. And that's just Apple's biggest silicon secret. They don't focus on performance, they never have. They focus on efficiency and the performance comes from that. They'll even go to the time, effort, and expense of swapping out components if they can find a version that's more efficient. They wanna be able to deliver most tasks most of the time at the lowest voltage and frequency possible, but still be ready to ramp up 
to spike even if and when you need it. And not just now, this year, when the chipset is introduced, but for the five or more years that are going to follow when new versions of iOS and apps will deliver increasing value, but also more demand. That's why the Apple A9 from the iPhone 6S and original SE, which shipped with iOS 9, will still be getting iOS 15 this year. And why the A15 Bionic, which ships with iOS 15 today, will almost certainly be getting iOS 19, 20, maybe 21 one day. And that relentless drive towards efficiency isn't even just at the chipset level, but for the whole entire architecture. Just like Apple extended the A14 into the M1 for the first generation of ultra low power custom silicon Max, it's not hard to imagine them extending A15 to the M2 for a second generation, increasing the amount of Avalanche cores and graphics cores, hardware acceleration for ProRes, including those Thunderbolt controllers and x86 translation accelerators, and supporting new features for the next MacBook Air and 24-inch iMac and the next iPad Pro. But more on that in a follow-up video. So seriously, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it. Because all of those new devices are going to be hella cool. Also, hella expensive. But luckily, smashing your phone bill in half has never been easier. And you can start saving right now with today's sponsor, Ting. Get talk and text for just 10 bucks a month. Data plans starting at $15 and unlimited from $45. Whether you use 2 or 20 gigabytes a month, you can find the perfect Ting plan for you and your family. And Ting works with the latest iPhones 13, the Pixels, the Galaxy Flips and Folds, pretty much anything with a SIM card. And you can keep your existing number if you want to. Plus, you get access to the best nationwide coverage in America, as well as Ting's award-winning customer service. Just go to renee.ting.com to check out the plans and see how much you can save, because it could be a lot. And because you're watching this video, you'll also get $25 off. Just click the link on the screen or go to renee.ting.com and get 25% off. Clicking on that link really helps out the channel, and so does hitting up this playlist to see everything Apple still has coming our way this fall. Just hit it up, and I'll see you in the next video.